Welcome to another episode of Rethink Real Estate. Today on the show, we've got Gideon Pfeffer, who is the Managing Director and CEO of the GSH Group. It is a group that specializes in the multifamily investment space, and it's an incredibly interesting episode, and I'm really curious about this space, not only for some of the struggles that it's going through at the moment that I think uh, the residential real estate sector should be aware of, but also we talk a little bit about the economy and where things are moving towards, uh, where we see things going over the over the long term. We talk also about some longer-term issues of whether or not the United States is losing some of its fiscal power within the world. Uh, a very interesting episode. Gideon is very well connected within those spaces from the commercial attribute of real estate, the multifamily spaces and the development element um, and raising of capital and funds. Uh, really interesting episode, helping us think laterally uh, in the real estate space so that we can deal with some of those larger investor clients. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Rethink Real Estate. My name is Ben Brady, and this is a real estate podcast aimed to deliver sales strategies, marketing tips, and business insights from industry experts and myself to build a listing-focused business for the future. Let's get into it. Gideon, welcome to Rethink Real Estate. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Ben. So we were talking before the episode, and we were talking a little bit about your journey in the perspective of you know, mortgage world into what you're doing now. And I think that the the one thing that I want to be clear on when we talk to our residential real estate agents that are the majority of the audience that are listening right now, I'm going to make this wide sweeping assumption, but also it's been confirmed many, many times over from our audience that our residential real estate agents want to do what you do. Okay. And I'm really excited to have you on from the perspective of what you do on a daily basis in the investment side of the business, you know, the projects that you develop and sort of how you've removed yourself out of the day-to-day deal grind that you see the agents in from the mortgage world into your story. So why don't we just start there? Where where have you come from into where where are you now? That's a, okay. I, I, I get the question. And um, I, I have this, uh, this, drive that I was born with inside that never seems to be satisfied. Um, I, I practice gratitude to, 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 to get that under control. Um, uh, but it's, but it's contrived and, and, and I have to, I have to actually flex that muscle on purpose in order to feel that way. So I was doing residential mortgages. I was a, I was a mortgage broker soliciting you guys, right? <laughs> Trying to get your business. When you had somebody who was going to buy a house, I wanted to do the loan. Um, that was back in the, the, the early aughts, right. From like 2002 till 2009 and great time to be in mortgages. Um, uh, interest rates were heading down. You know, when I got out of school and started doing mortgages, I was refinancing folks, putting them into 7% interest rates. And they were like, wow, this is a great rate. Right. And I was coming out of college. I didn't know if it was a great rate or not, but I just remember that, you know, having, Obviously, us all coming off of historically low interest rates um, and maybe feeling like, gosh, it's going to be harder to sell inventory today because interest rates just keep going up. Um, That's where they were back then. And so I was doing a lot of refinances, a lot of purchase business. And, um, you know, I was in my 20s. I wasn't I wasn't married at that time. I had limited, you know, overhead and responsibility and um, began investing in. Uh, buying houses, single family houses, kind of in more distressed 
urban environments, you know, where I could pay a lower dollar amount to buy a property. Uh, I did it with a friend of mine who was a real estate agent at the time. Um, we both literally both threw in $15,000, bought a house for like $20,000, fixed it up for the remaining 10 and then sold it. Right. We now our model was a little bit different than what you see on TV with like fix, you know, flip this house. We would renovate a property, put a resident in and then sell it to an investor as a cash flowing piece of piece of real estate. Was there any particular reason that you did it that like that versus, you know, the fix and flip sort of side of things? Um, you know, we eventually moved into that fix and flip side also, but we started uh, with on the rental side because of kind of the locations that we were buying, you know, because we were buying in um, maybe an area that was more uh, suitable for rentals rather than, you know, an owner, right? Got or it. Somebody who wanted to buy. Plus the, 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 the renovations were a lot cheaper. You know, so yeah, that's actually something that I think that that's that's an interesting thing that you bring up there is that you're right. Like people often think that no, I don't want to go into say Detroit in certain positions in that marketplace, um, you know, and and do that. But you know, people think, yo, I can fix and flip anything anywhere. Well, actually, what's the demographic of the people that can they can people buy in that marketplace, or is it better just from an investment perspective? That's actually you know something that I don't hear a lot of people speak about. It's it's. It's not something that's commonly come up through the you know hundreds of people that we've spoken about from an investment side of it. So it's a really interesting dynamic. Sorry to interrupt. No, it's fine. You you hit the nail on the head actually because I, the first property and, and many of the properties that we bought earlier on were actually in Detroit. Right, mm-hmm. I'm in Michigan. They were in Detroit, and for a long period of time, it was very difficult to get a mortgage in Detroit. And so um, you could, but there just there wasn't a strength or um, a density of home ownership within the neighborhoods of Detroit. It really was an area where most of the residents who lived there um, were renting or, or those who owned have had owned for a long time or generationally owned properties, but not a lot of new transactions. Um, but that's where the cheaper property was. Um, and you could put a, a renter in for a, a monthly price that made sense from a return perspective that might be attractive to a to an investment buyer. So I got into that literally organically, bought one, sold it, bought two, sold those, bought four, sold those, and so on. Um, and then 2000, that was probably around 2007. Uh, so for, we did that for a couple of years. And then 2009 happened, you know, the, the global financial crisis and uh, my mortgage business didn't fail. It just stopped. You know, you just couldn't yeah, write mortgages yeah. at that time. So I, I had this, what, what, what we would call today a side hustle, right? Which was flipping these houses. And I went all in on that. And um, for those of us who are around or active during that time period, you know, a little bit different than today, banks just foreclosed on everything that was behind. You know, today they're, they're more willing to, because of what happened in the, in, the, in the foreclosure crisis, they're more willing to like work with a, work with a resident, work with an owner, it ta- I think through legislature, it takes longer to foreclose on folks. But back then, they just uh, banks flooded the in- flooded the market with inventory. Values went way down, and we were able to buy houses for pennies on the dollar. Um, and I created a business where we were basically buying and selling 150 to 200 houses a year, um, and that evolved into creating portfolios for institutional capital outside of Michigan, in the Southeast, and the Carolinas, and Texas, et cetera. And so I, I became what I call a high, val, high volume 
single family aggregator. So we had a business, a core business that bought and bought, fixed up and sold investment properties. Um, and then we were acting as boots on the ground for um, institutional buyers. Like this was 2011, 12, 13. So for example, a lot of us have heard of like Blackstone and yep. Invitation Homes, right? Is their, their single family division of Blackstone. Well, we were doing this before Invitation Homes. And, and when Invitation Homes existed, but really hadn't figured it all out yet, and Blackstone was still willing to buy from other folks and other institutions. So that was my background it, it, and it was transactional. And so, you know, the fast forward and, and, and transition from that business, which is, you know, essentially, you know, a, glor- a glorified flipper at a high level to what we do today in multifamily and, and building a large portfolio and syndicating and raising funds from investors. Um, similar to, to, to you and, and, and a lot of listeners, you know, it was a trader business, right? I, I woke up every morning um, I, and, and needed to sell a house, right? I, I, I never owned the properties for more than, you know, a handful of months. And though I might've been doing a high volume at the, you know, on January 1st, I had to start all over again, right? I wasn't, there was nothing passive about the income I was making and it was all ordinary income and, and it was a lot of work. And so, um, the cash, the money was great, but it was a lot of effort. So, uh, I, around 2015, I, I, uh, had a partnership that had, that had done all of that, that I just talked about. It kind of ran its course. I did another project in single family that was a very large project um, where we bought and sold 700 houses in, wow. in about two years. And I was tired and my wife and I traveled a bit and we, 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 we spent time, you know, visioning what do we want the next phase of our career to be? What do we want to take with what we've learned and how do we, and grow from that? And, and how do we create a business model from the jumping off point that we were that maybe created a little bit more long-term wealth and maybe some, some long-term passive income, you know, kind of like, how do we set ourselves up for the eventual retirement if, if we're ever going to retire? And so the, the multifamily idea and it came around, that was 2016. Uh, I approached um, a couple of gentlemen who are older than me, 20 years older than me strategically to see if they wanted to partner up with me. When you buy large multifamily, um, you have to have a certain uh, balance sheet worth, net worth, and as well as certain liquidity. And um, I wanted to buy, I didn't want to buy 20 units or 40 units. I wanted to buy 200, 300, 400 units. And um, so I needed I needed some balance sheet and liquidity support. Um, so I partnered with a gentleman for that, partnered with another gentleman who had a, kind of already a little bit of a following of investors. So the deal was I ran the deal. I found the deals. I would run them you know, partner A would bring in uh, investment dollars and partner B would provide balance sheet and liquidity for the lending. Um, and so we went out and we started buying, we bought 64 units. Then we organized an, a company called GSH Group. And um, through the use of, you know, some of the following that my, that my partner has or had um, with investors, as well as the use of some crowdfunding platforms, we quickly, within a 12-month period, got up above a thousand units and wow. that, that was in 2017, early 2018. And, you know, since then we purchased about 8,000 units and, and deployed about $350 million of equity to build a portfolio worth a billion dollars. It's all impressive <laughs> from a numbers perspective when you look at all of those different things. 
I, I think that there's just a myriad of questions that come up in my mind, like from the from the transition from the single family element. Why did you see multi-family as the way to go? That's probably my first question. What made you sort of you know move into that sector, considering the fact that you knew single family so well? Um, you know, was it just the multi-family was the more attractive yield? You saw it as an opportunity. You know, then there's a couple of other questions that come to mind that I'll get to, but like, but I guess that that's my first one. Um, it's usually it's it's unusual that in the real estate space that somebody will move to a different sector like like going into multifamily versus staying in the single family element. I've only ever really seen people stay in that element. What was your reasoning behind going after multifamily? Well, I think that I think that the time of when I was doing single family plays a role in uh, in in my my choice because. If, if I were in the same position today doing single family, I might not feel the same way about moving into multifamily because back in the early, well, back in 2012, 11, 13, when I was very active, single family was just beginning to be a real estate class that institutional capital was interested in. It was okay. very hard to sell or package up properties to institutions like an institution might say, okay, we're buying in Georgia in these zip codes. And we'd go out and we'd buy 50 houses to sell to them. And literally like the two weeks later, they'd say, oh, we're not buying in that zip code anymore. <laughs> right. And um, so we, we had circumstances like that. I, I, I would go to um, family office conferences and different, different conferences or, or uh, groups to, um, to pursue equity to help us with our ventures and I learned very quickly that single family was at the bottom end of the totem pole in all of the real estate genres, at least at that time. And so no one really wanted to, big money did not want to play in single family. And if they were playing, they were playing on their own. They weren't funding for the most part. I don't want to speak in, in absolutes, but they weren't funding guys like me. Now, multifamily on the other side is a, was a, uh, a business that um, institutional larger capital and, and, and more investors were aware of, interested in, and willing to invest in. At least that was that was my perception at the time. I think it was my reality at the time. It might be different today because of the pl proliferation of all the different single family funds that have been created, continue to be created, that get rolled up into larger groups. Yeah. The, the, the um, huge popularity of build to rent which is something that we were doing back in 2013, um, but it but but it hadn't caught on yet. Um, so now it's more of an institutional space, single family. Um, but at the time, it was really an uphill battle. And um, scattered site single family is just a lot. It's a headache. I mean, multifamily yeah. has its own headaches, but you know, um, I just I, I think I maybe just gotten burnt out a bit. And 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 you know, my wife has a. a um, uh, she worked in financial uh, services. She's got a master's in organizational development. I had some other friends who are in the financial industry and they're like, look, you know, you're, you're, you're making great money and you really might want to consider tailor, tailoring your business plan to create some passive income. Right. And, 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 and maybe hold, hold on to some of the properties that you're, that you're buying. I was doing a lot of properties in Detroit. I didn't necessarily want to hold on to a lot of those properties, but, but I, but I used that, you know, I, I got, I took on that advice 
And, and, and again, like I said, brainstorming with my wife, what, what could we do? Because I really was pretty dangerous around a, a residential investment. Like I, I knew enough to be dangerous in, in construction. I'd owned a construction company. I'd owned a, uh, a small property management company because of all that single family stuff. And multifamily seemed to me like the best bang for my buck, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a really, that's a, it's a really thoughtful answer in the sense of why multifamily? Like, I don't think a lot of people, you know, look towards that. The one thing that sort of came up for me that's actually leading me away from multifamily. So I just, I'll, I'll ask the question now while we're on the single family side of it. The, there's, I, I don't know whether or not the, it's a, it's a thing that you buy into the media in residential real estate. You know, everybody's trying to create their own nar- nar- narrative in the single family space um, or just the, you know, the residential resale space. Do you believe that institutional buyers are going to create a problem for mum and dad trying to buy a home um, eventually just from a single family, condo, whatever, just residential real estate space? Or is the market just too big to worry about that? Um. I, you know, I, I think that I, I, I think I, I, I tend to think the latter that the market's too big, and I'm open to the potentiality that the the country in in a lot of different industries and verticals is becoming institutionalized, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I think that if you look at you look at a lot of different businesses and industries over the last just 20 years, you'll see that, you know, a major, majority owners were, went from individuals or small firms to large, inst- and, and when I say institutional, I mean like hedge funds, private equity, large organized capital. And so um, I think that it's already begun. I think that when interest rates were really low, um, it was already becoming problematic in certain locations that were highly desirable as investments where pricing was being pushed up by institutional buyers, I buyers, um, still great for real estate agents, right? The, the, the higher the, the price, the higher the commission, but to the, to the, your point of the, the, the mom and pop buyer, the, the, the normal everyday person, um, I think institutional buyers play a role and will continue to play a role. Um, as well as, frankly, low interest rates, right? Because um, you can borrow more and more, more and more people can afford higher priced properties. You know, there's a big problem in the United States, not just with single family and, and affordable living. It's, it's, it's rampant throughout, uh, also on the multifamily side. There's not enough affordable places for people to live within the United States. That's, at the moment, good for multifamily. Of course. People can't buy homes, but you know, it's not, not necessarily because of greed. It's just because of cost from my perspective. It's funny. Somebody, it's funny. Someone said to me the other day, um, they're like, oh, you know, people should actually rent. Like they, they use Newport beach as an example where we're based out of is that they're like, oh, you know, like you can rent for, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year or $150,000 a year, like on a really nice home. But if he was to buy that same home, you know, with taxes and all of this type of stuff, it would cost him $350,000 a year. And I said, and, and like, and that, that pisses me off a little bit when somebody naive says that, you know, like they're like, oh no, they shouldn't, they should rent, they shouldn't buy. And I'm like, with all due respect, the person that you're talking about, cause we actually knew who the person was. I knew who the person was. Now, this is a generalization, so forgive me for a second, Gideon, for getting an opinionated side of it, but you probably get this, is that, you know, 
it's all good and well to say, oh yeah, for $150,000 a year, he can rent that property and then he saves himself $200,000 a year from all of the other ongoing expenses. Like with all due respect, he wouldn't have a clue how to invest the other $200,000 a year anyway. So he might as well just tip it into the asset and hope that it grows because it's not like, like yes, if he was investing it, getting a better return and all of those type of things, 99% of the people out there that could save money by renting have no idea what to do with the leftover money and they just piss it against a wall for lack of better terminology. <laughs> That sounds like the real estate agent when you're talking. Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit. Probably a little bit biased. <laughs> no, I, mean, look, I think that it's, um, look, my wife and I lived uh, for five years in South Florida. Uh, we homeschooled our two daughters and 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 we call it, it's called snowbirding. Like we, we thought we, we, we felt we cracked the code. We lived in Michigan during the summer. We lived in South Florida during the winter. Um, and we've only chosen to come back to Michigan full time because our daughters are older and high school age and just need more from outside of that homeschooling lifestyle. But um, we still own our place in, in, in Florida. We lived in this place uh, that we, we could have rented and it, the same scenario, it would have been cheaper. Um, and there's something to be said about just owning the piece of property. You can do what you want with it. You know, if you're renting, you know, I've rented plenty of places as well. Um, and, and you don't always want to invest too much in that place because it's a temporary place. So it doesn't, oh, it doesn't completely feel like home, you know? So there's, I think there's some intangibles. It's not just dollars and cents, you know, like we, we paid more by owning, but it's ours. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. I guess that um, the uh, driving into the multifamily space, I want to understand some of the projects that you're selecting and what you're doing. Because most of the time, when I talk to people like yourself that are doing, you know, putting funds together and you know, getting outside investment or even just self-funding them, people are looking for properties that need capital improvement. So going in and getting an existing property that might have, you know, not they haven't raised the rents, they it's in disrepair. It's you know, they go in, they fix all of that up, and they. And they they build it out to obviously improve, and then either sell it or hold on to it. So understanding what you're looking for in the deals, what you're looking for primarily, what you see is the best side of things to do. Um, just your general strategy would be a great place to start, I think. Yeah, sure. Um, it's a it's a great question, and um, I'm going to answer it in, in hopefully a straightforward way. But it's not a straightforward answer because. The market has shifted, right? Just like it has probably for you and a lot of the listeners with interest rates. It's it's the same thing for people like myself who or, or companies who do what I do. As interest rates have gone up, like the inherent value of a property goes down, right? It's no different than a regular buyer of a, of a, of a piece of residential real estate. And so prior to interest rates going up, we would, um, we would find a piece of property that that we believed we could elevate through uh, tighter management or some sort of uh, elevation through construction of common areas, amenities, and the units, right? So can we charge more money by providing an, a better service or a better environment to live? Um, and that was our bread and butter, right? And then it would be, do you know, once we, once we, once we elevate that property and create more value by increasing the bottom line, um, we call it NOI, net operating income. Do we sell it or do we refinance into lo low interest, long-term debt and just own for a long time in cash flow? And, and the decision of which way to go, do you, do you sell or do you, do you hold? Um, I think was really indicative of the property, um, 
Uh, sometimes we would buy a property thinking we wanted to own it for a long time and the business plan would not go exactly according to plan or the location maybe wasn't as great as we thought it was originally. And so we decided like that was that that should be one that we prune from our portfolio and sell and take take our upside. Um, there were other deals that were in good locations where the financing was so advantageous at the time where we were able to refinance after elevating the property, pull the majority of, of all of our invested dollars out, return it to investors and ourselves, and then just own the property kind of, you know, with a zero basis. Those are great deals because yeah. then you're cash flowing into perpetuity with, with no underlying basis. So um, our, like our business model was never like straight up. We own for three years and then we sell or we own for five years and then we sell. It was, we wanted to grow a portfolio um, and let the market determine on an asset by asset basis if if we should sell or if we should hold. That's a really, I, I don't want to say smart answer because we know that you're smart already, but it's just a, it's a really good answer in the sense of that it has to be case by case. You have to be flexible with that approach. Um, question though, and again, feel free to answer it or not answer it and say that you don't want to talk to, talk to me about it, but you know, I know a few, a few people in the multifamily space that got caught out over the last couple of years because they bought a property. Um, they obviously have to refinance at the end of trying to rehab that property or whatever they were trying to do with that individual investment. And then when it came down to it, they couldn't refinance it at, a, at an amount that was going to ultimately make sense, you know. And then they got caught because they couldn't really sell it for the amount of money or whatever it is as well. Have you experienced some of those situations? And if so, what's your advice to people that might be in that situation and the way out of that? So, uh, wow, that's a that's a great another great question, and and clearly in tune with what's going on in the market today. And and I had said before, there's not a straight answer for the last question. I never said the second half, which is now that interest rates have risen, you know, and and that the Fed is not has straight up said they're probably not done raising rates all the way. The market hasn't been able to normalize into whatever the new normal is. And so as we're looking at assets today to buy, we have some very strict rules like no variable rate interest rates. So only we're only going to buy something with fixed fixed interest. And it's either got to be brand new, mm-hmm. just delivered, um, like you know a, 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 a property built in 21 or 22, um, or there's got to be some sort of distress involved in it where we're buying it at a perceived discount and if and and there's there's those deals are few and far between and we're not the only ones looking at that to, to answer your question directly I'm, I'm i'm an open book and yeah we we were aggressively buying through the beginning of 2022 and we we bought we've got a handful of deals that we purchased towards the end of 2021 and early 2022 on variable rate bridge loans that were exactly in that situation where we're working today where basically interest rates went up so high and so quickly more than anyone ever expected and when you hear people say more than anyone expected what does that mean you know it's not happenstance it's like there were indicators um so with that 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 all of us in the industry were looking at to to judge the risk associated with interest rates so with short-term interest rates where that vo- uh, uh, variable rate debt is typically tied to, um, it used to be the LIBOR index, and now that's converted to the SOFR index, there was what's called a, a forward curve. And the forward curve 
historically for decades was was right on the money or even conservative in terms of where interest short-term interest rates indices like LIBOR and so forth would go, right? And so we were buying based on where that curve was showing. Um, LIBOR and SOFR in the at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 22 were 0.1 percent, 0.1 percent. Okay, today they're like seven percent. I don't. I haven't looked in a few weeks, but they literally have gone up over well over 500, 600 basis points. That was never foreseen. And I actually I get a little snippet. I get a, a an email every morning from an economist. He's called the Bowtie Economist, and he. He sends sometimes like kind of humorous economic information and data and, and historical information. Well, the one this morning was was pretty poignant for me. And it said, in 2021, the Fed said that inflation was transitory, right? And transitory meaning it's short-lived. It's not going to be here for that long, right? Two years later, it's still here. And at the same time, they said that the terminal rate for 2023, they forecasted to be 0.675 for 2023. And the terminal rate, which is like the top rate of, of where the Fed is keeps pushing the rates, the terminal rate today is 5.25. So literally, it's almost 500 basis points, 5% higher today than what the Fed was saying it was going to be in 2021. So when you're, when you're, <laughs> when you're, you know, making excuses, I guess, but like when you're trying to like be conservative and forecast like where your interest rate risk and you've got leading indicators plus the decision makers saying that it's going to be at a certain place and, and it's completely so much higher than anyone could ever have imagined you get you get caught, so we're yeah. you know yeah. we're not immune to that situation, and you know we've got a few different solutions that none of which are really great for ourselves or our investors, our original investors. You know, one solution is to go to the lender and see if they'll modify the loan and extend for a while, and we continue to operate and hope that um, interest rates will come down a bit, um, and then you can you know you can close that gap. You know. Or, you know, the situation that you mentioned is that you get into a loan for a purchase that's here up at yep. this level, you know, and we're, this is a podcast. So, you know, let's say, you know, let's say you get into a, a loan that's $50 million yep. for those yep. of us who aren't watching the video. And today, because interest rates have gone up so high, you can only borrow $40, $40 million. So you literally have this gap and you have to refinance of $10 million you have to write a big check, a cash in refinance, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Um, you ask the lender for some leniency and some grace, you know, to, to wait it out. You raise that money. And in today's market environment, it's it's in a preferred equity position, which goes in front of the original investors. And it's usually at a double digit interest rate, which, yep. which really erodes the investor, any type of original investor return, or you sell it at a loss. And, yep, and, yep. and and you and you and your investors lose your original investment. There's not much other solutions that I've heard about. And it just and it obviously depends on your situation at your time, your, the, the liquidity that you have as a company. It depends on the strength of the investors that you've got at the time as well. But then, you know, at the same time, like I've heard a lot of people say to me that, you know, no, I'm just gonna tough it out. It's like 
unfortunately, you know, for a lot of people, that is just not an option whatsoever. Um, you know, and and it's it, but but I think that there that in all of this, in all of this, obviously those early investments in 2022, I'm assuming that you're seeing opportunity now based on what is going on in the marketplace to pick up some good deals. You guys have good investors that then you can, you know, or you can rally some good investors to go after some of those great opportunities where people are in those tougher places at the moment, not to say take advantage of them, but to take advantage of those opportunities, essentially. Um, Are you seeing a lot of that at the moment? So um, we're starting to see it. We're not seeing a a lot of it yet. Um, But but it is it is starting to happen and it's going to start snowballing into next year and into 2025 for sure. This is an opportunity, a, a, a time, a, a point in time where there's going to be opportunity to buy when interest rates are high. We know the Fed is may not be finished, but they're coming towards the top of where interest rates will be for a while, which means that if you can buy today, you're buying at a cap rate or a value that will probably Cap rates will come down, values will come up as interest rates come down. So if you can buy today through the next 24 to 36 months, whether you buy a 10 unit, a 20 unit, or a 200 unit, um, if it's if it if it has good fundamentals, you know you should do well on it. You know, and and hopefully your investor base realizes that even if they got caught in a property that maybe is um, is going to end up being a loss, that they should still continue if they believed in real estate and they believe in you as an operator that they 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 come in and not miss out on the opportunity, right? The Warren Buffett, be greedy when others are fearful. Like that, that's kind of in the time, the time that we're in right now. Yeah, great. Um, a couple of rapid fire questions um, uh, in perspective to market. Uh, what do you think is going to happen um, in the overall real estate marketplace over the next number of years? We, um, I've mentioned on the podcast before uh, that uh, you know I did uh, I'd had some ties into Goldman Sachs and some of the predictions that they were saying. And I was at a conference the other day. They seem to be promoting stagnation for the next ten years. Um, I don't know whether or not that. I, I all I'm always worried about institutional advice because the advice seems underhanded in some way, shape, or form. Um, but again, I don't, I don't know whether I'm right or wrong about that. But uh, but thoughts on where you see things going from a real estate perspective? So um, I think that people have to get used to interest rates that look like that have a five in front of them, um, and we're 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 kind of in at least in my world in long term uh, multifamily rates we're we're in the low sixes today, and so um, the days of you know two and three percent even four percent I think are gone. I think that that was artificially created. Um, I, I think a big negative you know global event would have to happen in order for interest rates to come back down like that. Um, I think that it's going to be. I think that the last 10 years, because of how, how great that recession was, meaning how, how, how deep uh, it went and, and the crisis that, it, that ensued, the amount of foreclosures, um, I think that we had a, an unprecedented run in real estate fueled by the Great Recession, the foreclosure crisis, and, and artificially low interest rates. I think we're getting back into like a more normal we're going to be getting back into a more normal real estate environment, which means that we all are going to have to work a little bit harder than we have. Um, the cream will rise to the top and, and there's going to be opportunity to buy at a discount 
And I believe that interest rates will relax, but not to the tune of 200 or 300 basis points. Are you uh, long America? And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's, you listen to a great deal of people out there in the world at the moment where they're saying that, you know, the new, like, you know, you've got Russia and China and some of these places that are creating currencies and removing it from the US dollar. Um, I don't exactly know the acronym. I can't remember what the acronym is. Um, But uh, then you, then you've also got people saying that, you know, if you were to look at, you know, the, you know, the UK, the United Kingdom and the downfall that that had within, you know, the early 1800s um, and into power, into the industrial revolution of what the US became yeah. um, or North America became. How do you, do you think we're in a transition of power at the moment over the next hundred years? Do you believe that, is there any thoughts around that? I might be asking a question, but you seem to be very well versed in all of this. Well, it's funny because I was just, I was on a, my bike ride yesterday and I was listening to the, the, the Arlen Summit and is that out did that come out today it's been it's on youtube yeah like there's different snippets of uh and uh and i was listening to uh they had ray dalio there and he did a 45 minute well first a presentation and then a conversation exactly about this which is perfect serendipitous so i actually have some talking points (laughs) but look i mean i I'm 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 way pro America. I I I believe that um, uh, I believe that that the majority of Americans are in the middle, you know. And unfortunately, we're in a system where the the, the play, the mainstream play, is is all hype of on on the extreme on either side. And so, I, I would love to figure out a, for us to all to figure out a way to to come a little bit closer to the middle and compromise because we've got we there's definitely some things that need to get taken care of like our national debt right like the amount of debt that we have the fact that the bonds are the 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 the, the rates are going to reset you know the debt's the debt's coming due and and the interest rates are going to be higher and the percentage of um what just our 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 deficit and debt payments are going to be to our total gdp is is getting out of control so i think that there's going to have to be some hard choices made and and i don't think that many politicians are brave enough to speak mm-hmm. out about it and 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 to and to rally to america's common sense i think the 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 majority of americans are you know uh, people that are willing to ro- roll up their sleeves and work towards a common good. We see that, you know, you saw that during the 9-11 in 2001. You saw that during, you know, World War II and um, plenty others that I'm not thinking about. I'd like to think that we still have that in us and that we can, you know, work together to 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 continue to, you know, have America be the leader globally. I, I think it, a lot of things and a lot of time would have to pass for America to not be that, regardless of how much debt we've got, um, but I would say that I'm 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 long on America because I don't know where else I'd rather be. You know, I 100. Hence the I, reason I'm here. Yeah, nothing. You know, I came from nothing. I got free lunches in in primary school. I put myself through college, um, and within a couple of years of graduation, I was making more than my father, and I've I've already been able to achieve more than I ever thought that I would be able to, and. I, you know, look, I'm a white male, so I think that maybe in some circumstances it was easier for me to do it, but it wasn't for lack of effort and hard work. 
Um, and, uh, and, and I'm not so sure it's that easy in other countries. Congratulations on the success. I, I definitely see it. But, uh, you know, it's funny. I, 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 the All In podcast is something that I just love. Yeah. And if we talk about the national debt side of things for a moment, I know we're a little bit we're a little bit at arm's length a length away, but I think it has impact in what you do, what the residential sector of 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 real estate just resale happens. You know, you know, you take Chamath, and he goes, "Who gives a shit about the national debt?" Like it, it's again, it's just a, this number that doesn't mean anything. You know, they're just going to keep raising the debt ceiling and da 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 da. da uh, yeah. You know, and then you've got Freeberg. Who's behind the scenes going? I think it's the biggest systemic issue that we've got in America. Right. You know, it's right. it's it's funny. Like, and and these guys are no less or more successful than each other. They play in the same type of spaces, essentially. Really. Right. Um, and the viewpoint of all of that is just so vastly different. Do you see one way or another? Um, I don't think I'm smart enough or have spent enough time to really understand what the ramifications could be. Um like Freeberg has, right? Yeah. So, um, and with Chamoff, I think that he, he, he does present a, an interesting idea, which is just, you know, change the term of the bonds to 50 years or a hundred years. And that lowers, you know, the, you, when you, when you lengthen the amortization amount, just like if you get a 15 year mortgage or a 30 year mortgage, the 30 year payment is less. Mm -hmm. So if you extend the bond bonds out to 50 or a hundred your buyers are long-term, big money, sovereign wealth funds. The U.S. is still a great bet. And we we have a little bit of a more tolerable um, debt service payment here. You know, that that also makes sense to me, right? So, yeah. you know, I, I, I'll leave it to people who are smarter than me to answer that question. So back to sort of the, the sandbox that we play in, um, sure. what, is the, what does the future look like for your company? You know, we're... Uh, we're excited because we're 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 chasing some brand new beautiful assets that um, are coming out of like some real reputable uh, developers, and we feel like we're buying at a, at a at cap rates with at interest rates that will help us in the long run because um, we think that they're high. Um, we're doing smaller deals as well, smaller development deals. We're we're renovating an old school and turning it into a bunch of apartment units. Um, we are doing some preferred equity on some deals that we own um, that that has a high yield. Great for new investors, not so great for the original investors, but great for new investors. Uh, double digit returns, and um, but I think for the the broader aspect, you know, we'll we'll continue to adapt, take advantage of the distress. Obviously, we'll have a little distress on our books, and we'll trade it out for new deals, um, and. Uh, we'll we'll continue to grow. the the, the next phase of the of the c company we bought eight thousand units the first five years. We'd like to buy another fifteen thousand the next five years. And you know, if we don't talk again until you know twenty twenty nine, hopefully I'm you know sitting around twenty thousand units. So the last thing that I I sort of want to get to is like we always sort of try and ask our guests around. You know ways that they've educated themselves. You know from an ongoing perspective, but also you know books, podcasts, you know different sort of things. But I wanted to sort of one anything that you're doing from a resource perspective to you know increase your knowledge base within the space, within the economy, within all of that. You mentioned the bow tie investor or or something like that. Um, like yeah. one of the reports that you get. So anything that you could share with us on that perspective, but then anything specific to the multifamily space that you would recommend somebody going through if they were starting to learn 
where they would start? Sure. I'm going to start with the second question. Um, I think that if, if you're interested in, in how do you get involved, how do you, um, I, I want to, you know, if I'm, if you're saying to yourself, I want to do this, I want to create some passive income. I want to generate wealth. I'm making some money on real estate. I want to put it to work. Right. I would recommend going to a boot camp. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's, uh, Pete Asmus, there's, um, uh, Rob Khalif, Grant Cardone. I mean, they, they all have a different, and there's more, but they're, they're they all have a different look and feel and, and, and vibe. So find one that, that, that speaks to you and, and invest in a day or two and go to a boot camp. You don't necessarily have to buy the product at the end of the, at the end of the weekend, but they're going to teach you the fundamentals of how the, 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 the business works. Um, just like you're listening to this podcast, there's plenty of podcasts out there to, that where we're talking about multifamily. And so I think you invest time in understanding the business more. Um, for me, um, I wish I could say that I, that I'm a big reader, but I'm not, I'm, I'm more auditory. Uh, and so I'm listening to a lot of podcasts and I'm having a lot of conversations. I think probably the most impactful, uh, beneficial thing for me today in my business is that, um, which I'm so grateful for is that there are individuals who are 10, 20, 30 years older than me who do the same business or similar business as me and have been through more cycles than I have. And they've been so gracious with their time um, for an hour to have coffee or go on a walk or meet at their house or meet at my office and to share with me their experiences. Um, good and bad, good times and, and, uh, and, and, and changing times, kind of like we're in, you know, lower parts of the, of a market cycle. You know, I try to be teachable, right? I try to be humble in, in that respect of like, I don't know everything. I, I, I I need to learn from others experience. And, um, these guys seem to want to be happy to pay it forward. and, And I'm learning a lot, um, about, how to handle myself today with, with, with successes and also things that aren't going as planned as well as maybe things that I can do differently in the next cycle. I think that's a very thoughtful answer. I appreciate you being an open book today. I appreciate you, uh, you know, working on the fringes with me on a few bigger questions. I felt that it was a it was a good person to ask, considering how much you had your finger on the pulse. But uh, but again, we appreciate you being on Rethink Real Estate, Gideon. A lot of fun. Thanks. I appreciate it. So about 75% of our audience hasn't liked, followed, or subscribed to our podcast. It would mean the world to us, and it would help this podcast more than you know to expand our reach if you were to like, follow, or subscribe on any of the platforms that you're watching or listening on. Thanks again.